hope. What is hope? Where do we go to find hope? And how do we lose it? When you look at the online Merriam-Webster dictionary, it defines hope when it says, desire accompanied by expectation of or belief in fulfillment. Or another one, someone or something on which hopes are centered. Hope happens when we not only want something, but also believe it can happen. By extension, hope is inspired when we believe that a person who wants the same things as us has the means to make those things happen. This morning, let me ask, in whom or in what are we ultimately staking our hope today? For real. I know we're in church and you often immediately think, well, of course God. But search our hearts. In whom or in what are we staking our hope? I was reminded on January 20th, 2017, half of our nation was filled with hope and excitement as their presidential candidate was inaugurated, while others were noticeably, desperately distraught. But then just four years later, on January 20th, 2021, there was a seismic shift. Many of those who were filled with hope and excitement just four years earlier were filled with gloom and doom as the new president was sworn in. While many of those who were shocked and dismayed in 2017 were suddenly filled with hope themselves. Is such hope in people, regardless of who they are, where they came from, or how educated they are, Regardless of what credentials they have, what political views they espouse, or what past successes they claim, is it wise to place our ultimate hope in people in this life? Is it wise to place our hope in a group of people? The scriptures offer some words on this matter, and it cautions us. Psalm 118 says, It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Jeremiah 17 gets a little bit more strong in its language. It says in verses 5 through 8 of chapter 17 of Jeremiah, This is what the Lord says. Cursed is the one who trusts in man, who depends on flesh for his strength, and whose heart turns away from the Lord. He will be like a bush in the wastelands. He will not see prosperity when it comes. He will dwell in the parched places of the desert in a salt land where no one lives. But blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. 
He will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when the heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought and never fails to bear fruit. How many of our lives as Christians reflect that constant, permanent trust in God whose roots are deep and bears fruit even in the driest and hottest of seasons? Anybody want to dare raise your hand? You'll notice mine's not going up. From the mid-1700s through the 1800s, during the European Enlightenment, many turned away from religion and started to put their hope in science and reason for the progress of humanity. But then in the first half of the 20th century, guess what happened? World War I, followed by the Great Depression, followed by World War II, and in the middle of it all, you had a worldwide flu pandemic that took the life of more than 50 million People. To put that in perspective, we've lost less than 4 million during this COVID-19 pandemic. Some have hoped that increased technology would bring about progress. But for every advancement that has been made, it seems to create more problems. Have you ever noticed that? And these problems often seem to only exasperate, uh, exacerbate many of the other problems we have today. Road rage used to be confined to those behind the wheels of their cars on the road and the streets. But now with Twitter, Facebook, and other social media, there's even more viral venom and road rage on the information superhighway from those who are behind their phones, computer screens, and keyboards. For all the good that technology has achieved, such bitterness has only thrown fuel on the fire to many of our problems today. Not to mention the complexity of censoring and privacy issues that go along with that. For many years, it used to be that many in America felt that next up, the next up-and-coming generation would have it better than theirs. But that rarely seems to be the case these days, if you talk to folks. According to a Pew Research Center survey conducted in December of 2018, which, keep in mind, was prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, a bitter presidential election, and prior to all the continued violence and disruption in the news, this survey, taken before all that, revealed the following. By 1950, 73% of Americans expect the income gaps between the rich and the poor to only widen. 84% of those currently working do not expect Social Security to be able to provide benefits at their current levels. I'm one of those. And 65% expect political division and dysfunction in Washington to increase. Happy, happy, joy, joy. Right? It's a lot of pessimism these days. A lot of anxiety. But even with all of it that surrounds our current climate, to whom do we turn for hope? For real? This brings us to our outline this morning. 
Jesus' resurrection gives us the courage and hope that we need when we are tested. The T-E-S-T, that's our acronym for our outline if you'd like to follow along. And the first point is, if Jesus rose from the dead, we can trust in the reliability of the gospel. Trust in the reliability of the gospel. We're not going to spend a lot of time here. We camped out here, I think it was nine, ten weeks ago, on April 11th, when we started this series. And we saw how by looking at the first verses in 1 Corinthians 15, we began to examine the evidence for the literal, historical, and physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is in 1 Corinthians 15 that Paul recounts the creed, and I just read it by way of review. It's in verses 3 through 8. Paul says, for what I received, that means this creed existed before he started sharing it right now. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then he appeared to all the, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. Here, Paul not only cites this early creed, but also recounts all the eyewitnesses there were to the physical, historical, resurrected Christ. If you haven't listened to that early message dated on April 11th, I encourage you to go back online. If you're questioning or dealing with questions on this issue, you're welcome to call the church. I can refer you to additional resources. I don't have a lot of time here to go into a lot of the details. But this is the question that we all need to wrestle with. The truth is, We're going to place our hope and faith in someone or something. And if it's not Christ, you need to know what you're saying no to. For I firmly believe he is the most secure hope that we have. Why is all this important? If Jesus said he would rise from the dead and he did so, it seems very logical and at least highly probable and likely That his other claims are true, including those about him ushering in the kingdom of God with his first coming and him bringing in the perfected, consummated kingdom of God upon his second coming. Dr. Tim Keller in his book, Hope in Times of Fear, notes this. He says, quote, various kinds of Western progressivism believe history is moving toward more individual freedom or class equality or economic prosperity or technologically acquired peace and justice. But all of these views are hypotheses. They are not hypotheses that anyone can test. They are hopes so hopes, beliefs that are not rooted in the empirical realm. The resurrection of Christ, however, includes powerful evidence from the empirical realm and, while still requiring faith, provides highly reasonable, rational hope that there is a God who is going to renew 
the world. That's what it boils down to. Which brings us right into the second point this morning. If Christ rose from the dead, we can expect all things to work together for the good and glory of God. Expect all things to work together for the good and glory of God. Don't let the news convince you otherwise. When Jesus died on the cross, if you'll remember, not even his own disciples were looking for his resurrection. According to the eyewitness, John, when Mary Magdalene found the tomb empty early in the morning, she initially came running to him, John and Peter, saying, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. She's not thinking resurrection. After hearing of the resurrection from the women at the tomb, the historian Luke reports that the disciples, that is the future leaders of the church, they did not initially believe themselves. Later that day in the evening, John, who was there, records when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. Why are they fearful if they know Christ is risen? It's because they don't believe it yet. When the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Wonder how long those words took to sink in. The disciple Thomas wasn't with them at that first appearance. So when the other disciples told them, hey, we saw Jesus, he's risen. He said, unless I put my hands in his side and in the holes in his hands, I'm not going to believe. <laughs> A week later, he was putting his hands in those holes in that wound. I went through all these disciples' reactions to simply say this. To those closest to Jesus, things looked bleak and hopeless on Friday and Saturday. See, Jesus was dead. His disciples could not see how any good could come out of their teacher, their leader, and friend being dead. But on Sunday, he rose from the grave. And over time, with the help of the Holy Spirit and Jesus himself, they would come to understand more clearly just how the death of Jesus Christ is good news and how the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides us a living hope. So when we, like those early disciples during Jesus' death, look around in fear and confusion, and everything seems dark and bleak, whether in our personal lives or our national lives or the worldwide lives, we must remember that just as Jesus promised them that he would return to life then, he has promised us that he will return to earth again and make everything right and new in this world. And if his disciples could trust him then, his disciples can still trust him today. As the church continues to preach and practice the gospel, seeking to expand God's kingdom here on this earth, 
we can trust Paul's words when he writes, we know that in all things, both the things we can make sense of and the things we can't make sense of, we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. That doesn't mean God causes it all. But it means that no matter what happens, he can work it toward the good and glory of God for those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. Remember who's writing these words again. Paul went from trying to stifle the gospel spread. They thought it was a cancer inside the Jewish community. He was trying to wipe it out and was persecuting the church. He went from doing all that to seeking to spread the gospel perhaps more than anyone during his generation. While all the while enduring imprisonments, floggings, beatings, sleepless nights, and multiple dangers. Why? All for the sake of the gospel. What kind of cope could sustain such a man through all of these trials? When we stop and think about it, we've got to wonder. Because personally, one trial can set me down pretty hard. He got him over and over and over again. What kind of hope could convince him that was all for the good and glory of God? I believe we get a glimpse in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 21. Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul writes. What does he mean by first fruits? Why would he call the resurrection first fruits? In the Old Testament, the first fruits referred to the first part of the harvest that came up with the Israelites. It was the part right off the top that was offered to the priest as an offering to God. Before they saved or consumed any of the fresh produce themselves. Before they started canning, before they started serving it up for dinner, they gave their initial crops to God. Why? Well, they gave out of obedience and reverence for him, of course. But in giving off the top, they were demonstrating their trust in him to provide them further crops to feed them and their families. When Paul says that Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits, he is assuring us that we can trust that there are more resurrections to come. Those who die trusting in Jesus as Savior and Lord will rise again to eternal life upon Jesus' return. And they will enjoy the pure, amazing presence of God in his perfected, consummated kingdom where there is no more sorrow, suffering, violence, injustice, disease, decay, or death. And they will enjoy that for eternity. The news reports will be all full of good news. And it won't be boring. It'll be more exciting than anything we could ever get excited about here in this earth. Paul writes later on 
in that same chapter, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, beginning at verse 54, talking about that resurrection. When the perishable, that is our decaying bodies as they are right now, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, when our bodies are raised, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm. Let nothing move you. This brings us right into point three. Paul stated it for me. If Christ rose from the dead, we can stand firm in the truth of the gospel. There's no need to fall apart. We can stand firm in the truth of the gospel. In other words, we can bank our lives and our churches on it. Paul and his ministry was sustained by the reality of Jesus' resurrection and our salvation and the hope of Christ's return and our coming resurrection. It is this hope and this hope alone that prevents us from falling into despair and disillusionment, and especially in the darkest of times and in the most difficult places we find ourselves. As Dr. Craig Blomberg proclaims, he says, quote, the resurrection demonstrates four sweeping principles that affect all of life. Truth is stronger than falsehood. Anybody tired of the lies today? He says truth is stronger than falsehood. Good is stronger than evil. Anybody tired of seeing all the evil acts? Good is stronger than evil. Love is stronger than hatred. And life stronger than death. End quote. It is in this hope that we can stand firm and not be overwhelmed by confusion and despair in the face of whatever challenges we are in and may be facing in the near future. And fourthly, if Christ rose from the dead, we can totally give ourselves to the work of the gospel. Totally give ourselves to the work of the gospel. Looking back at verse 58, Stand firm, let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. We are working towards someone and something that is worth placing our hope in. David Brainerd was a Christian ministry missionary to the Native Americans here in the 1740s. Upon his death at the youthful age of 29, after a mere five years of mission service, the well-known preacher of the First Great Awakening, some of you have heard of him, Jonathan Edwards, published Brainerd's journal. Later on, John Wesley would challenge his ministers to read this journal and even stated, quote, Find preachers of David Brennard's spirit and nothing can stand before them. Let every preacher read carefully over the life of David Brennard. 
Let us be followers of him as he was of Christ in absolute self-devotion, in total deadness to the world, and in fervent love to God and man. Other ministers and missionaries have drawn inspiration from Brainerd's work over the years. But before his journal became such a source of encouragement to so many, he struggled in his early years of missionary work. On April 7th, 1743, he writes in his journal, quote, appeared to myself exceedingly ignorant, weak, helpless, unworthy, and altogether unequal to my work. Is that inspiring anyone? He goes on to say, it seemed to me that I should never do any service or have any success among the Indians. My soul was weary of life. I longed for death beyond measure. You ever been weary of life? Just tired of it all? Where it felt like him? Have any of us serving Christ in the church, out in the community and beyond ever felt as if our kingdom work was going nowhere and will never experience any success? The resurrection assures us that our work for the Lord is never useless or a waste of our time. Thankfully, Brainerd persevered through that dark time and didn't quit. Three years into his mission, he went to New England where he shared the gospel with the Indians of, I guess I'm saying this right, Cross We Sung. And after 18 months, 150 of them had become Christ followers, which at that time was a lot. So church, keep on keeping on. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. And all of God's people said, Amen.